Greetings. Thank you for joining me on PBS Radio, All Road 65 Max. I am your host, Pamela L. Henderson. Please follow me on allworld65max.org and subscribe to my monthly Sapphire Journey News. And friend me on patreon.com, allroad65. Or join me here every other Tuesday and subscribe to my channel, BBS Radio, All Road 65 Max Radio. Today, my special guest is Dr. Linda J.M. Holloway. She is an associate professor of counselor education at Alabama State University. She has over 27 years of teaching experience. She is a spoken word artist, story activist, and a multi-award-winning author of five children's books, the Little Mrs. Linda series. Dr. Holloway is a true servant leader who lives by her life motto, always willing to serve. She retired from the United States Army Reserve as a colonel after serving over 27 years. She completed four combat tours during her time. Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, Farewell, two tours to Iraq Operation Enduring Freedom, and Operation Enduring Freedom Afghanistan. Her philosophy on life is dream your own dreams. She is building her legacy through her own personal ministry, Women Without Limitations, where she educates, elevates, and empowers women and girls by teaching them there are no limits to what God Almighty can do with your life. At last, I want to say thanks again for giving me this interview chance, Dr. Linda Holloway, and welcome to the show. Hello, Pamela. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Go right ahead. You with me? Yes, I am. Before we get started, I want to take just a minute of silence and pray for the war that's going on right now with Russia and the Ukraine, and I pray for peace. And I also pray that NATO, United Nations, and the governments abroad will be able to help stop what is going on. My focus is my mission statement to help create a quality of life through social growth, inspiring Jews to become leaders by establishing partnerships with corporations, donors, sponsors, volunteers, and the community and abroad. So I was reading your bio, Dr. Holloway, and you totally are one inspiring jewel. So tell me, about yourself. Where did you grow up and what were some of the things that you had liked to do before moving forward with your career or going into the service? Well, first of all, I want to say hello, Pamela, and thank you so, so much for having me on the show. And I also want to just greet the listeners that are out there. So thank you for this wonderful opportunity. 
You want to know where did I? Yeah, where did where you did grow I up? Grow? Okay. Yeah. I'm originally now in the uh, great city of Montgomery, but I actually grew up in a town in Mount Bayou, Mississippi. And I say that like that because it's an all-black town. It's a historical town that was founded about two ex-slaves, July the 12th, 1887. And so that's where I grew up with my parents, six sisters, and two brothers. I learned a lot of valuable lessons because we grew up on a farm, and that really helped me in terms of where I am today. Beautiful. That is beautiful. What interested you to become an associate professor of counseling? What interests me to become a social professor of counseling is that I've always had a strong desire to want to help people. And I was also very, very fascinated in my undergraduate about just what makes people who they are in terms of their behavior. And I just really, truly wanted to be in a profession where I could make um, impact in the community. Beautiful. What would you consider to be the biggest challenge for someone to fill that position as a professor of counseling? Wow, you got all the great questions. Um, (laughs) This is is a very complicated um, kind of profession. Most people, when they think about college professors, they only think in terms of teaching, but we have teaching, research, and service. And services in the community, at your university, also in your profession. So you're trying to navigate these terrains. And I want to speak from a personal perspective when you ask that question in terms of what can be the most biggest challenge. I like to look at my challenges as opportunities. And so just really trying to find your niche, because there's so many things out there can interest you in the area of counseling. And then trying to be able to do all of these things and really be good at it in terms of being a teacher, in terms of community service, in terms of finding something that you uh, truly want to write about. And I write in the area of Black women and mental health. So I would say these are, uh, um, if I could not say challenges, but they are opportunities in trying to make all of this work. And all of us in life, sometimes we're trying to find that unique balance if we would but I like to think about in terms of harmony because we never really truly get that balance because when you add family into the equation and all the other things so just trying to find that work-life harmony and know that you have done something uh, in terms of leaving a legacy you're making an imprint. yes absolutely I totally agree Dr. Linda, you are a multi-award winning author of five children's books, The Little Mrs. Linda series. And this particular book, I mean, it just lit me up and honestly, and it was, it's called I Love My Happy Hair. You had received the New York Big City Book Distinguished Award. Please elaborate the creativity that you had created when you um, wrote this particular book? Well, I want to answer this question. I want to provide some context to it. I literally was at a point where I was thinking about what it is that I wanted to write about. So 
so in my writing, in terms of the manuscripts that I was writing, I a lot of my books actually, uh, they are spin off from that. They stem from that. So I had written an article on black women here in the marketplace. And I was really, truly intrigued about the legacy of hair. And I also began to study about the challenges that black people had around their hair and how they were policed around their hair and how it started early on in life. And I I just began to think about me and my own upbringing. As I mentioned earlier, I have six sisters. And so just the whole idea of how my mom would have to prepare us with in terms of our hair. And so one of the things I wanted to do was be able to celebrate our hair because oftentimes uh, black people were penalized about their hair. They also things like, how did you get your hair like that? Or this, you know, just like I said, in terms of, can I touch your hair? Or you'll see through our history where there were even laws against black women in their hair and how they were supposed to wear their hair. And so I really wanted young girls to be in a position where they can celebrate and they can really look at their hair and say, I love my hair. I know Belle Hook, and, uh, which I really truly admire, had written a book on Nappy and I'm Happy. But we really wanted to have a language around that that just really celebrated. And like I say, you see through our history where uh, black women were challenged by their hair. And even in the state of California, they came up with a crown law, and that was to create a a workplace for natural hair. So you see that hair was uh, was a significant in the world as well as in the community. So I really wanted children to be able to celebrate their hair. So that's how I love my happy hair came about. And I love my happy hair actually has a song that goes with it that we sing, and so the children really truly love that and you can see also many videos that are out there where you know young children have talked about being teased by their hair um, I know that I want to say that I believe it was Doug maybe back in 2021 was really kind of responsible for putting a crown law out there which is creating a, a respectable you know place in the workplace for black women in their hair but they also, on uh, the website, you will see that they had done a study, and they talked about 53% of the black um, parents said that their children uh, actually were being teased by their hair. They had been teased, but also their children. Then they talked about 80% of black teens had said by the age of 12, they had been um, hair discrimination. And then 100% of the black teen- children, girls, said if they are in a majority white environment by the age of 12, they had already discriminated hair bias. So I thought it was really important that we get the message out about um, the celebration of my hair. I do agree because I had my first international student and I remember right before she arrived, she had asked me about did I have a hair dryer, and of course I do. But I have the hair dryer that you know we sit under, like we were going to the beauty salon. Mm-hmm. 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 So when she came, she wanted to use my hair dryer, and when I had brought her my dryer and told her, you know, we was going to prop it up where she could sit down and sit in the dryer, she was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> um, I was told that 
um, black uh, women don't use regular hair dryers. And, you know, I had to school her and educate her on that as well. So I totally understand and I and I am glad that you are getting that message out. That is beautiful. Dr. Holloway, you are a true servant leader who lives by her life motto, always willing to serve. In your opinion, what makes a great mentor and how do you create a transformational energy in children, as you stated? Another great question. Um, What makes a great mentor is someone who is willing to lead by example. And I may say that in a very simplistic way, but being able to, when you are mentoring someone and you have already gone down the pathway, perhaps that they want to go or you're trying to lead them, they will have a lot of admiration for you if you are leading by example. And that's not just what you are saying, but also what you are doing. And like I said, it sounds easy, but it's really not because you have to be really uh, cognitive of. And and what I think in terms of a good or excellent mentor is one that is willing to listen, one who is willing to be able to communicate effectively, one who is one that will stay reveling in terms of what's going on in the world and what's going on with that individual. And when I say listen, because sometimes as a mentor, you kind of feel like, you know, I'm older, I had a lot of life experiences, but a young lady that I'm mentoring now, Miss April Berry, I am now learning a lot of things from her, just about, you know, social media. Um, She really inspired me to get an iPhone, you know, So as a mentor, you also have to be willing to listen to your mentee and take advice from them as well in terms of, you know, I should say advice or guidance from them. So you have to be really open for that. And you also have to be open as a mentor to know that your mentee can surpass you. You you really uh, want them to do exceedingly more than you have uh, done. And I think the second part of that was how to create transformational energy um, in terms of change. As much as you can to be positive, uh, to try to make sure that you're putting children out in front of role models, and then also to be authentic and be transparent and let people know about your own failures. Because sometimes when people see you or they read your bio, like I was listening to you as you were reading my bio, and I was thinking, who is that? But to know that all all of that didn't happen overnight, that there were many challenges, um, many obstacles that I faced. And so I think in part of how do you create transformational energy and to let children know that I was once where you are now. And that, like I said before, that, you know, I've made mistakes, but there were people there to encourage me and to empower me. And I think that helps create transformational energy in terms of children. I totally agree. Yes, I totally agree. You completed four combat tours during your time in the service. Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, 
two tours in Iraq, Operation Enduring Freedom, and Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. I mean, that is that is phenomenal. And just we had this great conversation over the phone and just to hear you be so upbeat and I mean, it's I am so proud. I am proud to be interviewing you. How did you overcome the challenges and obstacles on your journey and came back to the United States and resumed with your life and career? Well, I'm going to take you back to that um, small black girl that grew up on the farm in Mississippi. They taught mm-hmm. us some things, and they taught us things like never giving up, resilience, being persistent. And I was born in the 60s, so there were a lot of things that were going on in the 60s. But being in a historically black town just really uh, empowered you and gave you a sense of, of who you are. And so in going into the military, often people would say, you are the way you are because of the military. And I was like, no, I was like this before I went into the military. So even just going through that, uh, the military has become really sensitive to the mental wellness of of the service members. I was in the Medical Service Corps, but I deployed as civil a civil affairs officer. So I want to make uh, make sure that I do let the audience know that the Army really uh, supported us in terms of our own mental wellness. So they created like the Yellow Ribbon Program. So whenever we would come back from deployment, they would give us that time, medical benefits. And so we have people that we can actually talk to, debrief. I also want to say that I had a strong support in terms of my family, my friends, even just people in my neighborhood. There are so many moving parts to when someone gets that phone call that it's time to be mobilized until you actually boots on ground, as we say, and then you return home and trying to reintegrate back into a society. So there's several things that happen. So my... um. It's very important to have a support system. I had uh, really wonderful neighbors that pulled together, particularly one, uh, O.J. Rice, my neighbor across the street. They're like, hey, I'll mow your lawn. I had another girlfriend that stepped in, you know, as far as taking care of my home. So all of these things are really important because when you are deployed or you are mobilized and you are in the combat zone, you try not to have your mind on things back home. Obviously, you have family and things that are back home, but if the less uh, stress and uh, frustration you may have about things that are going on at back home, the easy is for you to focus on your um, job because you're working 16, 17, 18, sometimes 20-hour uh, uh, days. And so coming back and having the community, uh, the uh to welcome you back and to support you. And that wasn't always the case for service people when they left to go off to war and when they returned, they may not have been received by the citizens. But now people literally walk up to would walk up to me and say, Thank you for the service. And that's when I had on the uniform. And I would say to myself jokingly, Man, I wish they would say the same thing to me about being in the classroom. Because <laughs> I feel like I'm a, you're in a, in, in a comeback zone. You're at war every day. But they would literally come up, and I and it was very sincere. And so that those kinds of things make it really, really easy. 
Uh, like I say, the VA constantly have, um, they send out information all the time. So when there are things that are going on in the world that they think that can be triggers for you, they literally will send out an email and say, if this is a trigger for you and you need someone to uh, talk to, you can call this number. And unapologetically, unashamed, if I felt the need that I needed to talk to someone, then I can reach out. So I would say those kinds of things really uh, help because in your training as a soldier, you know, you're kind of told to tough it up, to suck it up, drive on. Right. And so you, you, you're not really given that space to sit and just kind of sit in your emotions. You know, you got to soldier it up. And so when you hear this for so long, you feel like, you know, seeking help, it, it, it makes you weak. So I would say having these systems in place, people realizing that these are things that we need to stabilize our life and to continue on. I think I, I would say it has been just uh, tremendous. Helped me wow. in terms of my challenges. Yeah, that support system is absolutely is needed. I, I do agree. Dr. Holloway, you are building your own legacy. Women without limitations. I gravitated to this message because it also brings awareness of obstacles and challenges we face as women on our journey towards success. Explain about your ministry towards this legacy building. This legacy building comes out of my um, commitment to be a Christian. And to and just my passion that I have for uh, women. So even mm. in reading the Bible, you know, I would always look for, you know, the women of the Bible and how were they treated and to try to understand that in a cultural context. So even when I think about, I often like to talk about the woman at the well, and she's having this conversation, you know, with Jesus. And, you know, the well is dry. You know, other people say why she was at the well and all. But, you know, this is a woman that goes and tells everybody, let me tell you about a man. So she's witnessing and she's prophesizing. So when I'm working with women and we talk about women without limitation, we look at them historically from the Bible or other women and say, these were women who had no limitations in terms of, they had limits placed on them by society and by culture, but they were determined. And so that helps to motivate us. You think about the woman with the issue of blood. And so she pushed her way through. She was not, it was against the, you know, the laws for her to be out there to do that. Even the women in the Bible that um, when they were killing young children and they continued to allow the children to be born. So you see these uh, powerful women that are doing some magnificent things. So we decided to turn the term women without limitations. Obviously, we do have limits, but to know that we come from a legacy of women that uh, have done some extraordinary things and, and continue to do those things. So that's um, kind of the nuts and bolts of Women Without Limitation. It's the it's Christian ministry in terms of me just simply, as you mentioned earlier, educating, elevating, and empowering women. But also now that I'm doing children's books, I, I still want to do that with young uh, uh, black girls, I still want to do the same thing. And we try to look not just, because you know, a lot of times when you're working with children, you say, Harry Tuck, Mr. Donald Truth, you tell them about the 
uh, historical women, but looking for women such as yourself to say, you know, see what Pamela is doing and what she's overcome. So being able to let them know that this is still happening today. And so I think that's really important that we can show them current women that are still movers and shakers, whether it's Maxine Waters. And we can continue to name uh, a lot of uh, women who have broke barriers and continue to uh, break barriers that are not necessarily in athletes. When you think about COVID-19, the women who have been on the forefront making a difference in that area, women in STEM. So that's, that's, that's what it's all about. But like I said, because I am a Christian and I grounded in terms of a, uh, from a Christian base, yeah, that's <clears throat> that's very, very inspiring. And I'm with you. I am with you 100%. And I, I am totally intrigued with, you know, your books, and we're going to get into each one of those books. But I was also inspired. And tell me about your philosophy, which you were just speaking on, I know, but you also said, dream your own dreams. And that is your doctrine. So can you tell me why you came up with that philosophy of dream your own dreams? Yes, I can. Thank you for asking that question. Uh, Once again, um, Oftentimes, when I'm even talking to my current students, they find it hard to believe that I actually chopped cotton. I chopped and I picked cotton. So while I was uh, on the farm working the field, mm-hmm. I would just say, this got to be a better life. Not to say that that was a bad life, but at that time, as a young child growing up, having to go to work, I was saying, I want to do something different. And I also knew that I wanted to do something that would actually move my family ahead. So you're thinking about nine children. Uh, my parents go, well, you know, you, you was very trenched in education and going to school. I wanted to get everybody through high school. They might have had maybe a seven or eight grade education because they didn't do promotions like we do now. And so right. that was the real big thing. So me being the youngest of nine, I was thinking, man, I'm getting out of here and I'm going to college. And so (laughs) I was always dreaming about how can I improve myself? But not just for me, because when you come out of particularly a minority or people of color, you come from a collective. So when I win, my family wins. So I take them with me. So it wasn't just me, even though I was the first, because I definitely wasn't the smartest, going, my siblings supported me. They were there. I remember my brother coming down and taking me to Alcorn State University, my aunt riding with me because my mother had worked that night. And I remember just even being in school and I had a sister that was a nurse and it was like I could call her and tell her the different things that I might need. We even laugh today about this situation. I joined ROTC, so I needed some gym shoes. And she said, oh, yeah, sure, I'll buy you some gym shoes. So she sends me some K-Swiss because she was playing tennis at the time. And you know what I said? Oh, no, these shoes are too good. These are not running shoes. I can't wear these uh, for ROTC. So I said that to say we were dreaming, uh, working together collectively. They were supporting me. And I always had a dream, you know, like even you talked about me um, 
as far as being in the military, when I would see other officers in their rank, I would dream mm-hmm. about what I need to do to get there. But I wouldn't just stop with the dream, but I would also put in a plan of action because we can obviously we can sit all day and dream about something, but we have to get in action. So when I say dream your own dream, and I'm talking to young black children, I'm like, like, like there's no limit. If you dream that you want to be the best of whatever, I, I think about Primetime, who went to Jackson State University to, to coach, and people were like, oh, you know, he never coached college football, this and that. But he came with, I believe, and he took the team as far as they could go. So that, to me, that's dreaming. And so I, I tend to just really think about that. I tend to think about those kinds of things about a lot of different things I do in my life. You know, people say, well, it's never been done before, but that doesn't mean you can't have that as a dream. That is not um, impossible that it cannot be done. So I, I, I do uh, think that dreams are very, very important. They carry you, and that's what motivates you to get you up and going in the morning and, and to, to want to continue on. Because I just think if you if you don't have a dream, if you don't have something that you're reaching for, then that can be very challenging in the sense that it, it may not motivate you as much because that's something internally versus something right. externally that's pulling you. Yeah. I'm going to speak again about another book and it is something that I am very passionate about and that where my focus is. And Dr. Holloway, tell me about your book from the Little Mrs. Linda Speaks about diversity. Um, and you received a five-star review from readers. Tell me about that. Well, I actually, I really... Um, I love cultural, and so with my compa- my passion for culture, I, I really wanted to do something on diversity. I've been teaching diversity for a long time in terms of counseling and diversity, but I wanted this particular book to be a little different, though. Little Miss Linda is speaking out about diversity, but what she's speaking out about is colorism. If I can just add a little bit about what the book is about very briefly, it, it's She's a young girl who her father's in the military and he moves every three years. And so she's being teased by the pigmentation of her skin. She's a dark skinned girl. And so the book really is centered around uh, colorism. And so that's where I'm coming from and from that. We do know diversity in terms of cultural, ethnic group. It can deal with a lot of different issues, but this particular book actually deal with colorism and colorism. I actually did do an article on colorism. It's very um, prevalent in the uh, black community. Sometimes it's a topic that people do not like talking about. We've had right. movies from, you know, light skin to dark skin. Uh, we do know that um, we give credit to Alice Walker for coining the term of colorism. Uh, but we know that colorism is believed to be that in which, uh, based upon someone's shade, uh, in terms of lighter skin, having preferential treatment over a dark skin person. And some people might often say, well, well what does that really mean? That means a lot because economically, an uh, individual may or may not get a job. Uh, so it uh, so it can impact them in terms of how they see themselves 
in terms of their cephic steam. And we know that there's a lot of work that has been done around cephic steam and academic achievement. And so if there's a preferential treatment, if someone is being chose or not chose, then they will feel what? They will feel excluded. And people tend to say, well, you know, we're in the 20, this is 2022, so we're not really necessarily seeing that. Aren't there black dogs that are out there that kids can still choose these particular dogs? But I still come in contact with parents who say they tried to buy their child a dog and they would prefer a dog of a a lighter hue. And so we talk about what that means, and it comes out of what we in the Western culture has historically seen as the standard of beauty. And so it's kind of like if you are are white or have the characteristics or attributes of a white woman or person, then that is what is deemed to be beautiful. But we know that we do have incidents where that is changing, and so we're speaking out against that. And once again, it's a book about celebration where we want young children to celebrate who they are in terms of their skin. It talks about the young girl. She bleaches her skin. We do know that uh, there was a signing of a petition. I believe it's called Beauty Way. It might have happened in 2020 where a group of women, not just black women, but women from India, different where, where they got together and signed a petition and turned it into Amazon because they wanted to take some uh, bleaching cream off the market because it had a lot of mercury in it. And they realized it was causing some health problems and, and people are bleaching their skin and trying to um, be something that they're not. And so just being able to accept the skin that you're in. So that's the kind of the point that I come from in terms of that level of diversity. But we do want people to accept uh, individuals, um, you know, if a person with a disability, uh, if you're somebody from a rural town versus an urban town. So one of the things I teach, I teach graduate school, so we talk about it from an inclusive model, not just from a race and ethnic perspective, but we talk it from classism to colorism to cultural in terms of, in terms of gender bias. So we're not just focused on that one particular area, but for that book I did, I, did, I focused on colorism. Great. Yeah. Wow. And speaking of that, I always speak about and I always recognize when I either meet great leaders. And to me, in my opinion, growth leaders have phenomenal attributes, yet only a fraction of companies have consistently achieved top and bottom business growth despite their budget expectations. Growth leaders manage businesses for asset efficiency, not only for profit and loss. The criteria that helps a leader to efficiently grow is to become an empowering leader who is open to understanding your directive. And I am honored to acknowledge you, Dr. Linda Holloway. You are an inspiration to us all. Adversity of leadership is to allow the transformational commitment as a good communicator with integrity and stance. And I must say, after 12 years, I am still growing and learning, and that takes guts. Tell me about your journey as a spoken word artist. 
uh, I'm laughing because I feel like I'm a neophyte in that area. But when I think about that, mm-hmm. I always tend to think it's just something that just started. But the more I think about it, I have been kind of speaking, even as a child, doing poems. I remember when I was in high school, I did a poem. And it, it's not true, but it was 16 years old and pregnant because they were doing something on teenage pregnancy. So the way that I wanted to communicate that was being 16 years old and pregnant and not knowing what to do. And then for my graduating high school class, I did the poem, Never Can Say Goodbye, for our class. That was the song we sung, but also for what I was speaking to. And for a while, I thought, oh, it's just something that just kind of happened. But during COVID-19, in terms of trying to uh, stay positive and things like that, most creators... Uh, tend to tell you that, oh, I was just driving or I was sitting down or I was cleaning the house. And it's just like something in your inner spirit begins. And for me, it sounded better in my head than it sounded out. So a lot of times when people would share with me about different things, I will kind of do it in a poetic way in terms of when I was talking about it. And so Mm -hmm. a really good friend of mine was telling me, hey, you need to do something with that. You need to put it out there. And of course, you know, most of us, we are our own work critics. So I had done (laughs) something at at that particular time, and it was on um, get your knee off my neck. Because I had a few people calling because I do work in the area of diversity and teaching diversity. So, man, if we were in your class, I know we would be having a great time. And I just really, to be honest with you, I felt emotionally constipated. And what I mean by this, like we've been talking <laughs> about this, we've been talking about this for a long time. How do we get the message out? So you would see that, um, particularly, you know, in terms of the African American community, we rap, we sing, we do a lot of different things in terms of expression. So I would say that the spoken word part of me began to really develop and take notice during that time because it was a way of coping for me. Uh, so. When I did, you know, you got to take your knee off my neck. That was really my way of just really uh, dealing with my own emotions at that time. And I remember I did one um, on uh, come on down to Montgomery, Alabama. And when I was um, leaving Huntsville, Alabama, uh, relocating to Montgomery, Alabama, I began to think about what I liked about Montgomery, Alabama. So I began to just, in my vehicle driving down, just begin to talk about the things about come on down to Montgomery, Alabama, where the grass is greener and the water is cleaner. And so <laughs> I, as, I, as, I, as I began to do that, I actually, when I was going out to recruit for our program, the counseling program, I began to utilize it. And I also brought it into my classroom. Um, to in terms of that. And I would tell the students, like, I think you've been doing this for a while. And I think it's because when I would look at other spoken word idols, I felt like I didn't have that rhythm like they like they did. And I just began to take up my own space and realize I just got that down-home Southern kind of talking. And so I just kind of stay, I just kind of stay in my lane. And so that's where the spoken word artists kind of come in, uh, but it's usually from a social justice perspective. Like I've done something on I don't apologize because I feel like we as um, sometimes as minority people, we always apologize. We apologize for stuff that we don't even, it's not even a problem or 
we're not in the wrong. We just simply say, you know, I apologize for how I look. I apologize if you don't like my hair. I apologize if you don't like what I got on. And so it's really short, but it basically just talks about me as a black woman. You know, I'm no longer going to apologize for who I am because who I am is who I am. I did one on Fifty Shades of Blackness, which just deal with color, but it celebrates all the colors because at one point, People will talk about the, uh, in terms of enslaved people, the people that were in the field had a harsher time than the people that were in the house. And so they had a name. I, just, I don't use the name. And so there was that division. You had this division. But when you read about um, uh, slavery and plantation, they didn't have an easier time. They were just sheltered from, but they got some things that maybe the people out in the field didn't get. But they still had a very, very difficult time because they were oftentimes, uh, you know, subjected to rape and and, you know, the the abuse of the master's wife, you know, if you would. So they had a very challenging time, just as it's just as much. So th- that's what my spoken word artist is really coming uh, from deep within my soul to talk about those things that are challenging for me. Yeah, I have visited your website and your message absolutely resonated with me. And you had made that statement. Never ask permission from someone. (laughs) (laughs) And I know that you were just touching on that conversation just a minute ago from us always apologizing even when we know we haven't even did done, but since to make this person understand, I don't mean any harm. I'm apologize right. so we can move forward. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah. So that, that, that resonated with me um, about that statement that you hadn't made. Never ask permission from someone. Did you want to elaborate a little bit about that? Of course, obviously I, I don't mean like an absolute terms that you shouldn't, but there are things, once again, getting back to dreams and, and, and reaching certain things. Sometimes mm-hmm. you can go around and ask several people about what should I do or not do, and you're going to get a lot of different opinions. So that's what I, kind of, I was coming from in terms of different things in your life. Uh, when I began to write my children's books, I didn't ask for permission. And that's probably where I'm coming from. But obviously there are things that you want to in life and it's appropriate to ask for permission. But because, you know, in the area of publishing books, you can go traditional or non-traditional. I'm an independent right. author. So I knew if I would have asked certain people, they probably say, you should go this route. And this is why you should do what you should do. And I think you should do this. And I think you should do this. And sometimes when you get caught up in that, you can suffer from paralysis and never get started. So if you feel that that's something that has stirred your soul and the direction in which you need to go, that's kind of what I mean by that. Um, I can recall when I was being deployed, like I said, I really served in military as a medical service uh, corps officer, not as a civil affairs officer, but I deployed as a civil affairs. And it stemmed from me reading an article about civil affairs. And I thought, man, I really would like to do this civil affairs thing. And and I had a um, military buddy say, no, I don't think you really want to do that because they are are the ones that actually go out 
in the community and work with the locals and the people and stuff like that. And, you know, and, and they, they, they getting shot up pretty bad. I don't mm. necessarily know if that's what you want to do. So that would be like, I would ask that person for permission to, that I should do that. But I didn't ask anybody for permission. I didn't ask my family for permission. I suited up and I actually told my unit if they ever need, um, you know, people from the, from the medical service to deploy a civil affairs officer, I would like to put my name on the list. They chuckled and laughed at me and basically said, well, you don't have to worry about that because the medical service are not letting anybody go into any of the other areas because they want to, you know, preserve their medical unit. Well, probably within 30 days, I got a call from the unit saying, are you still interested? And so those are the kinds of things I mean when I say that, you know, I want to kind of give some context to that because we will find ourselves as people who are relational and live within a community in a country, we have to get permission for something. If you live in a residential neighborhood and it has housing and restriction, you have to get permission to deal with certain things. So I don't want to come off as uh, you just out there willing and kneeling, doing whatever. But when it comes to dreaming your own dreams, when it comes to doing the things in life that you feel led that you ought to do, uh, I, I say then, you know, move forward, um, you know, in, in reference to that. I, I totally agree. When I decided to write my book from the challenges and obstacles that I had endured on my journey, I, I, I wanted to write the truth, my truth mm-hmm. pertaining to my book. And I am a award winning author of the new book, Journey of a Sapphire. The book is about a girl who had overcame uncertainty and adversity on her journey towards success. And I hope to inspire others who have or who are going through obstacles and challenges to never give up on your dreams and aspirations and to and how to recognize behavioral problems. That is the key. You can purchase my book at journeyofasapphire.com. Also on amazon.com, Journey of a Sapphire by Pamela Henderson and available on Kindle. But I am just honored and I am going to send you my book. I would like for you to read it and give me your um, feedback, Dr. Um, um, Holloway. So I look forward to that. Tell me about, you wrote a book also, Mrs. Linda speaks out about rape. What inspired you to write that book? Before I answer your question, I want to say thank you for the complimentary uh, that you've said, you know, and also thank you for your willingness to want to send me your book. I appreciate that. Um, what inspired me to write Little Miss Linda that goes to rape, uh, speaks out about rape? Rape is very prevalent in the black community. Rape is very prevalent among young black girls. And so, um, I mean, young girls. And so oftentimes people do not want to talk about that. And so the term, the, you know, just the mere fact that you use the term rape, uh, can put some fear in people. So right. <clears throat> I wrote the book from the perspective that it's not explicit of anything like that, but to introduce the conversation and to 
uh, let young girls know, you know, good touch versus bad touch and, and what they need to do if something like that should happen to them. And just kind of challenge that, you know, let people find that kind of challenging and talk about, you know, parents or teachers or things like that. So I kind of went down some uncharted territory on that. But when you think about Maya Angelou, I think she was probably about seven, seven and a half years old when she was raised. Um, also, Oprah Winfrey, uh, maybe about nine. And mm-hmm. so we know that Maya Angelou, you know, didn't speak for about five years, you know, and I too know why the cage first thing. So it, 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 it lends itself to know that this is happening. So having been deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq and seeing young brides and seeing young girls being placed in those positions, uh, because they're not necessarily being consensual or even in, um, you know, trafficking, you know, girls being trafficked. And right, being used yes. and exploited in that way. So I think it's a conversation, although the language may be a little, people may not be comfortable with, it happens. And Absolutely. so when something like that happened, even like me being on a college campus and having worked in a counseling center, a lot of times when a, a young lady is raped, she wants to take a bath, she wants to shower, she wants to do. And so being able to have conversations about how you, and in terms of the evidence and what is needed, and how that's looked at. And so that, that was a lot of uh, why I wanted to uh, write that book and, and, and put it out there because that's a, another area that um, I think that needs to be talked about. And particularly, like I said, um, young black girls that are coming up pregnant, you know, in sexual things that they're being faced with and challenged with. So be able to start the conversation. Because in this particular book, uh, someone comes in the house, it's a stranger, it's not someone that she knows, but she blacks out. So she really doesn't know what happens to her. Her mother has to tell her. And then she kind of uh, does a program called Star Sisters, uh, you know, talking about rape. And she realized that there are other, you know, young girls who had had that experience, but were not talking about it. So uh, most of the little Miss Linda books are they are in such a way that something happens, but she flips it and turns it into something that a community activist kind of thing. And that's one of the reasons why I call myself a story activist, because these are books that should activate or stir someone's soul or stir someone in the direction to say, we need to have some kind of program. We need to do something about this. Um, It was very... So it's been very prevalent, uh, rape in all parts of, of, of my life. You know, even in the military, we had people that, uh, we had to deal with that. You know, rape yeah. in the military, whether it was a senior officer, lower officer, just a lot of different things. So a lot of times people don't want to talk about that because it will make, uh, an organization or something look bad. And we don't want right. to make it yeah. look bad, but it, you know, it's a reality of what about that person that is actually uh, having those experiences. And so, you know, and then it's, unfortunately, this, this is not something that, 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 that's new. This is something that's been going on historically. And if we mm-hmm. don't understand the context of how people see uh, a woman or a male, because you do have uh, young men who are also being raped, but uh, but this book actually does deal with uh, girls. So I don't want to exclude that it does not happen uh, 
to young males because I've been in conversations and this has happened to young men too that they have been taken advantage of. But, you know, from the masculine perspective, they don't feel like they could say it. They should or they can say anything. So one of the things about my books is I really try to create a safe and a brave place so different topics that may not otherwise be talked about can be talked about. And, and obviously, race is one of them. Right. And also, you <clears throat> wrote the book also about Miss Linda goes to counseling. So that intertwines with everything else that the little Mrs. Linda has either experienced or something that needs to be discussed openly. And these are some really, really good books. So I commend you for that. So the last book that you had written was Speaks Out About Sickle Cell. Tell me about that book. Okay, once again, I wanted to kind of address the topic of physical disability, but when I looked around in terms of the African-American community, this is a particular mm-hmm. illness that oftentimes get overlooked. It's not really talked about. It's not on the forefront unless you're in a community that has a mass group of African-Americans, and then it may be talked about because a lot of people don't even know that sickle cell month is September. That's the sickle cell month. Also, they are not aware of that June 19 is National Sickle Cell Day. And sometimes that get overshadowed in the African-American yes. community, black community, because we know that June 19 is the other day of celebration, which should have its space and time. So I really wanted to, if I could, toot the horn, blow the horn, shine some light on uh, sickle cell. Because right. I had a really good a friend that actually suffered from sickle cell and talked about how, you know, all the other illness get their day and people talk about it, they get over, can get overlooked. And they experienced a lot of challenges in terms of, you know, eyesight loss, just in constant pain. Um, even sometimes they talked about going into the emergency room where the doctors think that they just hooked on drugs. Just basically they try to stabilize them. So little Miss Linda has a friend named Sally that gets sick at school, but she doesn't know why. And so she finds out that's why they call her sickle cell Sally. And so it's kind of like they're booing her. But what sickle cell Sally mother parents does is have her to create a foundation called sickle cell Sally. And through this foundation, she brings awareness to sickle cell. And so that through their friendship, they actually are able to you know, get the word out and begin to talk about sickle cell. There are uh, research that is being done in the area of sickle cell, and they've come a long way because historically their life expectancy would be something like in the 30s, you know, but it has changed. They also, when children are born, they can get tested for sickle cell now. So we as a country, we have come a long way, but it's the people that are involved in saying this is an issue uh, people are getting genetic counseling, meaning that because, you know, you can be a carrier and if you didn't know you were a carrier and then somebody else is a carrier, what's the probability when you get start getting your X and Y chromosomes? And uh, so being able to understand what that looks like and 
and, and those sorts of things. So that was my way of kind of just doing that in such a way that it deals with bully and someone with disability. Yeah. Um, I had my, my best friend when I was little, she had sickle cell. And I remember the times when um, we were trying to go to the game and she couldn't go because she was just sick. And that was the first time I experienced loving someone that was so close to me. She was my best friend and I couldn't help her. And at that time, we're talking about in the early, what is that, the early 80s, you know, they didn't really have the research to help them. But I did speak to her about last year and she's doing well and everything. So I was happy to hear from her. I was so excited. So, yeah, that's good. That is really good. Well, I know that we are, huh? Did you say something? No, I didn't say anything. Oh, okay. So, Dr. Holloway, how can someone contact you regarding your services or wanted to um, speak with you? They can reach me at my email, Linda Holloway Speaks at gmail.com. That's Linda Holloway speaks at gmail.com. That's how I can be reached for now. And what about your books? How can someone attain by purchasing a book? All of my books currently right now, they're on Amazon. So they can, they can get them from Amazon. And what's the link to Amazon? Hmm. I'm just thinking, because <laughs> I'm so used to this. My, <laughs> I don't know the link to Amazon. I just know that when they type in Amazon and put in my name, um, you know, the, the books that I've written, you know, and I always go by Dr. Linda J.M. Holloway because there are other, uh, you know, Linda Holloways out there. So if they put my name in, it will link to that, but I don't. So if they go to Amazon.com forward slash um Little Mrs. Uh, Linda books, maybe something like that, or yeah, yeah. they put in those the keywords. Linda series, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. If they put in those keywords, it would come in. If they put in the author name, it would come in, and they would take it will take them to my author central page, and they would see, you know, all five of the books that you have mentioned. That those books would be on there. Beautiful. Well, Dr. Holloway, it has been a pleasure having you on my show. Do you have any last-minute comments you want to say? I would just say to someone uh, from the writer's perspective, anyone who's thinking about writing, would like to become an author, and as simple as it may sound, I would say just write. Start writing. Start where you are. Um, make sure you do your research in the area that you want to write. Write about something that stir your soul, that you will be committed to. And then um, get in a writer's critique group where you can have someone to give you feedback on what you're trying to write, and then go forward and put your information out there. And I would just reemphasize, dream your own dream. One of my other philosophies about life is um, uh, be a servant. You know, if you find yourself in positions or 
and life, be willing to serve, and always do your best. Impact the space you're in and leave a legacy. That's right. Yes, ma'am. Well, readers, I have reached my destination and I leave you with this quote. Until next time, do have a fabulous day from a true sapphire herself, Pamela L. Henderson. When you are a mother, you are never really alone in your thoughts. A mother always has to think twice, once for herself and once for her child, Sophia Loren. Thank you so much again and do have a fabulous day. Thank you for listening to All Road 65 Max Radio with Pamela Henderson. Join us every other week on Tuesdays, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on BBS Radio Station One. And please visit allroads65max.org and become a volunteer or sponsor and be the change you want to see in this world. With your help, we can make a difference in our society and uplift those who so desperately need our help. Thank you for tuning in.